Hello everyone, how are you? We'll be speaking about timeless parenting principles according to the Bible and Kabbalah. Though the title is about parenting, the message and the lesson is to all of us. Whether you're about to be a parent, whether you will be a parent in the future, whether you're a parent and already have grandchildren, because we're going to be talking about something that is going to be quite unique and a unique angle. Maybe the best way to begin is by asking a very basic and obvious question. How do we know how to parent? There are no parenting schools. Nobody goes to school to learn how to become a parent. And even if there was a school, we could probably be quite wary what they would teach us. So where and how do we learn about parenting? So really two, two answers to that question. Number one, from our own parents, from our mothers and fathers, how they parented us, for good or for bad, that determines a lot of what we will do when we become parents ourselves. And the second thing is from trial and error. A couple is blessed with a child or with children and simply making mistakes, with, with the, the, the facing the challenges, hands-on experience, it's a work in progress, and you learn on the job. You learn on the job. Yeah, there's also, of course, instinct that comes into it, a healthy, loving instinct, hopefully, that a parent has to a child. And, of course, as I said, all of it shaped in some way by what we saw in our own homes as we grew up. But then here's the question. How do we know that all that is sound parenting? All that is subjective. If our parents, for example, were not the best parents, or even they tried the best, but they didn't have all the information, and their parents, in turn, were not the best. And as I said, we don't have any schooling. We have no objective model. So how do we even know that we're parenting in the proper way? How do we know that we're not making errors, maybe even grave errors, in when we raise our children? So all this behooves us to look at, do we have a model that we can turn to? Now we have today books, parenting tips, guides, how-tos, and all that. But there too, that's based on hopefully some research, some examination, some introspection, and maybe good advice as well. Would you believe and that's what going to be the theme of this discussion, that there's actually, yes, a healthy paradigm, a healthy model of parenting that we can look to and learn from in how we ourselves to become parents in the best possible way and give our children the best possible chance to actualize themselves, to grow into productive adults who have a healthy self-esteem, healthy humility, confidence, and instead of fighting demons and spending so much energy and time on dealing with fears and insecurities, can focus on bringing their own unique light into the world and transforming themselves and others and the world in which they live. That is going to be the theme. And where, this, where does this paradigm come from? Where does this model come from, this formula. It's a time-tested, proven formula that is thousands of years old. And it produced something. It produced progeny. It produced children. Children that produced more children. So when you want to know something successful, from a business point of view, you look, did it produce customers? Did customers produce more customers? Did it continue to perpetuate generation after generation? And if it did, there must be some formula for success. And yes, it comes straight from biblical teachings that goes back thousands of years that in turn gave birth to the Jewish nation. But from the Jewish nation, the lessons have been spread and passed on to all the nations. And gleaning from there, we will come away with exactly that, that proven formula. So then you can then juxtapose and say, okay, here's what I've learned at home from my parents. Here's what my instincts tell me. Here's the trial and error. But I have as a backdrop a model that you can compare to. So instead of perpetuating 
perhaps a dysfunctional parenting model, you actually perpetuate or build and correct a healthy, a, a, I can't say perfect, we're all, we all have our flaws, but at least we have something to work with. And the truth is in everything in life, whether it's medicine or science or spirituality or psychology, you always want to have some type of backdrop, some model. Like, you know, if you want to know what health, what, if you want to know if there's a problem with your lungs, you need to see what healthy lungs look like. If you want to know if there's any issue with anything, you need to juxtapose it over something that is a pure form, a more quintessential state. And then you can say, okay, based on that, I know I've wandered away. Here it's off, here's right, and so on. So we always look for that template that we can compare to and then correct, grow, repair, improve, refine, and so on. So what I'll be doing is talking about certain basic principles and then perhaps use some case studies that we actually find throughout history, interesting studies that teach us, some of them counterintuitive, about how to be the best parent possible and give our children the best chance possible. So let's begin with a, uh, the first most important statement in the Bible itself. When it describes a human being, what is the first description? God says, I will create a human being in my image. It doesn't talk about an intellectual creature, an emotional creature, a human being that can achieve things. It talks about the personality of this creature is a copy of the divine image. Tzalem Elikim. So when you think of a human being in its purest form, that's what we are. We're an image, we're a divine image that manifests itself in many garments, in many faces, in many layers. So when you see a person, you may see the externals. But if you cut to the core, what lies at the heart of divine image? So that's lesson number one. That a parent has to look at themselves and their child as a gift. A, a new gift that comes to this world, your child is born, enters this world, sent from above, which we'll soon talk about, in the divine image. Like freshly fallen snow, a child is the purest, pristine form. Then life will take over. Just like when you look at a newborn child, you see a healthy child, you see the lungs, you see their chest heaving up and down. Their lungs are perfect. You see all other parts because there's no toxins yet, there's no pollutants, there's no human behavior that has yet in any way compromised psychologically or physiologically or in any other way or emotionally the child. So you have the purest version of that divine image. So that's number one. A parent looks at a child and what the child really is. Not what you think it is. Not just external beauty. Not just cute. All that's nice. But at the heart and soul of it is the soul of the child is divine image that entered in this world. Within that comes point number two that no two divine images are quite the same. Each one is born with a unique personality, with a unique mindset, which will, of course, emerge as the child grows. You don't see it immediately. And unique skills and skill set and resources and talents and faculties. Yes, there's something in common among all of us, but there's also something unique. Because there's no reason to send a clone to do, you don't need two of the same. Each child brings a particularly unique energy into this world. That's lesson number two. Or I'd say principle number two. And principle number three, go back to the gift. It was a gift sent to you. It didn't just fall into your lap. It's not an accident. Parents can try to have children and sometimes they're not blessed that a soul will enter in the child and a child will actually be a fetus, a baby, a new born, will be, a new, child, a new for, life will be conceived. So when it is conceived and it develops and grows and then emerges upon birth, that's a gift from heaven. So that's principle number three. So the child is in the divine image. Number two, it's unique. Number three, it is a gift sent to you as parents. You don't own the child. The child comes from a greater place. 
just as you do. And that place is a divine place, a transcendent force that made a, a deliberate decision that this is the time that this child, this soul, this divine, a unique divine image should enter the atmosphere, the environment of this world. So then what is the role of the parent in all of this? Are we just bystanders observing it? No. We're caretakers. We are gardeners. We were given the vote of confidence, the responsibility, the gift to be the gardener, the shepherd that will shepherd and nurture and cultivate this, divine, this unique divine image sent to this world for a particular purpose. If every parent just kept those three principles in mind all the time, you can imagine how parenting would be revolutionized. But some, most, many, many of us have never heard this before. We may have intuited, intuited this approach, and it definitely resonates, but very often, as I said, we pick it up. Where do we pick up parenting? From our, our own parents, from our friends' parents, from the media, from society, from uh, Hollywood and from television and from the Internet, which but not necessarily captures this theme and this message. So those are the three first most important guiding principles. And what is a gardener supposed to do? A gardener, when the child is the, is the flower, two things that every gardener does. One is, it plants the right seeds and nurtures and irrigates and waters to make sure that the vegetation or the flower or the tree should blossom and flourish. And number two, you weed the garden. You get rid of weeds, of, of uh, pestis, pest, pet, um, rodents, or other types of germs or insects that may damage the plant. So you have two things that you need to do. One is to cultivate, to nurture, to irrigate, to water. And number two, to protect. And that's what it says in the verse, that Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, Garden of Eden, that's where the first quintessential man and woman were placed, and each of us, the same thing, we are gardeners. To do what? To serve and to protect. To serve, la'avda, means to do what are the positive acts necessary to help that garden thrive. In this case, the child, to water the child, to nurture the child, which we'll talk about in a moment what that means, and to prevent and protect that the child growing in this garden is protected from forces that are predators that may some way compromise or even hurt that child. So what's the cultivation? With the flower, we know you plant it, you care for the soil, you add fertilizer, you water it in a timely way. In the human being, the way we do that, that's called building the child's confidence. It's called nurturing, demonstrating love. Love is like water, irrigating. Feeding the child, not just physically, of feeding the child also spiritually and psychologically by demonstrating both an action in words and in body language how much you love your child how much you see the child as a gift from God and a divine image and a unique divine image and that should be an ongoing message you'll say why do I have to say it every day to my child every day I have to give that message yeah, because there are many forces in this world that will send us other messages. How negligible we are, how insignificant, how we're just a statistic. So it's vital to feed that from the youngest age all the time, as much as possible. And the second half is to protect. Protect from hostile forces. And they can take on any different shapes. They can take on the shape of verbal abuse, anger, physical hurt, anything that in some ways compromise or some ways violate the sacred space of this divine image that was given to you to protect. And that's your mission as a parent. That's the ultimate in parenting. 
Now, taking these three principles and the things we need to do to make sure this happens, and you break it down, you have to realize then, of course, that each child, as I said, is unique. Which means not one size fits all. It's not a cookie-cutter model. You can have several children. One child may need a certain type of attention. Another may need a different type of attention. Their intellectual aptitude may be different. Their personalities are different. So it's critical to educate your child according to his or her way, meaning tailored and fitting to that particular unique personality. There's nothing greater that you as a parent can do with your life. To say, I'm too busy. I'm working. I'm working what to give security to my child and in the process deprive security from your child, meaning emotional security, that you're there, that you care, that you're invested, you're engaged, is think about that, how ludicrous that is. So obviously we have to balance and we have to find a way to achieve both, both the ability to work, make a living, and support our families. But even more importantly, support them in the emotional, psychological, spiritual sense of the word. And that cannot be overstated. Because above all, if this soul, of the, if their child is fundamentally a divine image, that's the most important thing. If you didn't know that or you didn't care about that, what would be the case? You'd say, you know what, most important thing is me to feed my child physical food, entertain them, do things that are very material in helping the child and providing for the child. But when you know that the child's essence is a divine image, and number two, that it's unique, each child differently, then how do you feed a divine image? How do you sustain it? With divine actions, with divine words and thoughts, with spirituality. How does that manifest in a child's life? We're not talking necessarily the word religious, even though that can come into play, ritual and tradition, but I'm talking about the spiritual, the transcendent. Children by nature, and this brings me to, to four, principle four by nature, have a very fertile imagination. They dream, they aspire, they fantasize even. They're creative, they explore. They have that spontaneity, that free abandon, that very often as we become adults, we become much more controlled and much more limited either because we feel self-conscious or because others have told us that. But there's something beautiful about that enchanted free spirit of the child. We never want to crush that because that direct expression of its divine image, of its soul. The more a child becomes a conformist, the more it begins to, it begins to calculate everything. Obviously, as a child grows older, you have to have intelligence and discretion. But you never want to lose that enchanted side, that sparkle, that ability to just be excited by the moment and grow from there. The challenge is how do you maintain that while we grow into adults. But as parents, we don't want to crush that. We don't want to just turn the child into a technician, into mechanics. We want the child to always maintain that creative spark, which is what lies at their core. You look at society today, so much of education has taken away that from our children. It doesn't cultivate that part. It almost says, put that aside. That's arts, music, arts. That's like an extracurricular activity. The real thing is master mathematics, master history, master political science, master literature. I mean, there's, there, there may be very good education systems, but not enough focus is put on the cultivation and the irrigation, yes, the watering of the spark, the divine spark, the divine image, which every child carries. And of course, immediately, customized to each child according to its unique manifestation of that divine image. So it would be great if parents could work with educators in helping identify and focusing on these inner forces. How many things would this preempt that a child growing into a teenager, that adolescent stage, that awkward stage and all the confusion that comes with it and the hormones and all else that emerges as we turn into Adult, first teens, then young adults, and then adults, and searching for ourselves, if you're able to feed that child from a younger age 
that they're in touch with their souls, they're in touch with their spirit, they're in touch with that creative energy, then you've given the child unbelievable head start. They still will go through their questions as everyone matures and becomes an independent entity. But you will have fed, you will have prepared them. It's think of a tree that was watered properly when it was a little sapling. Then when it grows into a tree, it's not starving. It's not deprived. Same thing with children. As we parent our children and shepherd them and nurture them, we're watering them so they will have the strength and the power to do whatever they will need to do as life develops. One more point to make. The Talmud says that when a child is in its mother's womb, it is taught the entire Torah. Basically, the blueprint for existence is the Torah. It's like an architect or an engineer. They give you the machine, and they give you an operator's manual with all the schematics that tells you this is what the machine is made of, this is how it works best, don't do this, do this. Essentially instructions to the gardener. So you could think the child is just a neutral state and it's up to the parent to shape it all. No. With it embedded in the DNA, in the inner superconsciousness of the child, is the entire blueprint of existence that comes from a higher place. Education is meant to be re- reuniting with that information, not new information. It resonates something that was there all the time. Because upon birth, we're made to forget. So that blueprint is downloaded in within us, in our psyches. It will always be with us. Upon birth, consciously, we're made to forget. But in the superconscious, we retain it. And that's why children have very healthy instincts. Until again, someone tampers with them. Because as we shall soon talk, children are impressionable. It's very easy to also hurt a child. That's why you need both the nurturing and the protecting. But if you don't, if you protect and you nurture, that inner voice, that sense of what's right and wrong, will grow in the child because it has it embedded in its being. Just like a child has a natural immune system at work and has other natural faculties, you don't need to create them. You may need to facilitate it if there's, God forbid, an infection. But the child, a human physiological system, a healthy one, has everything built into it to do whatever needs to be done. A child doesn't have to be taught to eat. A child doesn't have to be taught to drink. Doesn't have to be trained to, to, to breathe. And all these processes just work naturally. The same thing is on the psychological and spiritual and emotional side of the child. It also has healthy instincts. But it's so easy to distort them. Because parents who may be insecure or may have other stuff that they're projecting, instead of embracing the child and helping that divine image emerge, you impose on the child your own failures and disappointments and attitudes. When a parent yells at a child for no particular reason, when a parent allows to subject their child to their own particular idiosyncrasies or mishigas, nor even worse, Essentially, in a way, violating the child, abusing the child, whether subtly or overtly. When the parent is not there to nurture and support, is always critical, judgmental. Always wants the child, how do you make me look? Instead of focusing on the child, focusing on themselves. That's what I said, focusing on the divine image, focusing on themselves. What do you think will happen? The impressionable child, just like the impressionable flower, if the gardener doesn't do the job properly or allows the weeds to grow, or even worse, the gardener himself or herself imposes on the flower or on the plant its own stuff, the flower will be compromised. Children are impressionable like a warm ball of wax. Every experience a child has gets embedded, engraved in that warm wax. And as the child grows, it gets hardened. And then it becomes part of the routine and the pattern and the personality of the child. It's not fundamentally the essence of the child, but now it's so deep. You have to melt the wax again to somewhat dislodge these distortions. But that's the power that parents have because God entrusted us and said, yes, you have the power, God forbid, the ability to hurt your child, to not protect the child, to not nurture. And that's your responsibility and accountability. I'm trusting you. Do what needs to be, do what needs to be done. 
Don't be lazy. Don't give up. Don't say, I don't know. Find role models. Find others that can help you. So the impressionable child, that free, that free spirit, that divine image, and its unique divine image, the gift given to you, is there. You have the power to cultivate it and bring it to life. The parent does. Or to conceal it. What happens when a child is hurt? When a child is criticized again and again? When a child is put down? A child is silenced? That divine image starts to shrivel and curl itself up like in the fetal position inward. The knots that we build. And the child then starts projecting a new image. Not the divine image. You know which image? What the parents want. To please them. Child doesn't want to hurt them. Doesn't want to be, doesn't want to disappoint them. Or the same thing with school, the same thing with peer pressure, and the same thing with bullies, or the same thing with the media and internet. You start becoming another persona. You start assuming another persona. And when you wear that mask long enough, you sometimes think that's you. And what happened with the pure divine image, which was the key, and the uniqueness that you have, and the gift that was sent to this world to accomplish a unique mission? It goes undercover. The inner child gets concealed. Then the work is how to free yourself from that. But that's not the focus of this program. This program is focusing on parenting skills, on a formula for healthy parenting. We'll talk another time what a child or an adult has to do if they were deprived of that. You have to learn to self-parent. You have to learn to find other mentors or other nurturing forces in your life. That's, that's understood. But that's, as I said, outside the scope of this discussion. Let's talk, we're talking about parenting. So parenting, you hear now both sides of the coin. The greatness that you can contribute and also the damage you can cause. Not permanent damage. There's always ability to reverse, but you're making it very difficult. Because you had that beauty. You had all the potential. The child was there with the divine image. And now, due to a parent's insults or a parent's abuse or a parent's even... And I don't even talk about severe forms of abuse, has caused that to be concealed, to go undercover. So let's talk of the positive. So what do you do to nurture? What you do to nurture, number one, is attention. You can't just water a garden from a distance. You have to bend down, look at each flower, water enough, the right pace that it absorbs it. You can't flood it. Weeding has to be done also with great care. Care, concern, is a form of nurturing. It's also attention. It shows you're valuable enough for me to pay attention to you. You're worthy. And the contrast is when you don't give that, the child says, what's the matter with me? My parent, my father, my mother, they're not available. Another classic story, sad story. Son of a, of a big tycoon, very wealthy, big businessman. And his son needed something, and he's looking for his father. And his father's not available. He's busy at work. The son calls him at work. No, I'm not available now when I come home. He comes home, he's busy, he's doing, watching television, doing other things. The son calls again the next day, and his father says, why are you calling me in the middle of work? I told you not to call me. The son does not give up. And then he asks around, they say, you know, your father's a very busy man, and he's making a lot of money that you'll inherit one day. So he realizes, you know what, my father really is doing his time, is worth money. So he calls his father one day, and he says to his father, tell me. Dad says again, why are you calling me? One quick question. How much do you get paid an hour? How much are you, what's your hour worth? He was the, so his father says, what kind of ridiculous question is that? Anyway, when he comes home, his, father, his son is badgering him. How much is your hour worth? So his father, you know, to just get rid of his son, and uh, says to him, Whatever, $20,000 my hour is worth based on his business investments and all that. The next day, the father finds on his bed before he goes to sleep, or not in his bed, I'm sorry, on his desk in his, uh, in his study in the house, at home, an envelope. And he opens the envelope, and the envelope has loose change. The son put together, the little boy put together, $3.41. And with a note that says, how much time will this buy me to be with you? 
Now a healthy father's reaction is, oh my God. He made a point. It's a good point. I need my son to tell me that. Three three thousand forty-one cents is not even a half a minute. An unhealthy parent who's so consumed with himself or herself will just dismiss it, some type of childish thing, and maybe even yell at the child. You tell me. I don't think we need to discuss or debate which is the right approach. So care and concern. It's not even about money. And it's not even about much time. It's a quality, a focus that I know that I'm sitting with you and nothing is more important, my child, than you right now. That's a form of nurturing. And the contrast is not to provide that. That's depriving necessary oxygen and water and moisture and irrigation from your own flesh and blood. Can you imagine? And what's protection? It's the same idea. To ask the child, how's your day going? What's going on at school? What's with your friends? And if you notice something, obviously not micromanage and not control, but if you notice something that may need some addressing, you focus on that too. Not like that mother, another story, that comes to school and the teacher realizes, you know, it's kindergarten, that her son is very clingy and needy. So the woman, the teacher, says, you know what? She, she musters up the courage. I'm going to speak to the mother face to face, mother to mother, woman to woman, and hopefully she won't be offended that maybe she should do something at home to give more nurturing to her child. So she sits down with the mother and says, you know, I feel uncomfortable bringing this up. It's your child. But your son is being very clingy lately. And I suggest maybe at home give him a little more attention, a little more catering to, a little more conversation. And the mother's response was she was surprised. Absolutely. I thank you for telling me. As a matter of fact, the pediatrician told me a similar thing. You know what I did? I called up our I, I summoned my, uh, the, the nanny and I said, you know, I need you to keep hugging that child more and more and more. You're not hugging the child enough. Now, nannies are very good. They make things convenient. But sometimes children, not just sometimes, always also need their natural mother and father. So that is what you don't want to do. It's just delegated to somebody else. You have to be there. And that's vital for the child's development, and confidence. Because when someone's ignored, even an adult, and then repeatedly ignored, at some point you say, what's the matter with me? I'm not worth it. How many people have told me, I'm not worthy. Nobody really cares about me. How do you know that? Because my parents didn't really care. Why would anyone else care? It's sad. But you're a divine image, I would respond. No, I don't feel that way. I was never treated that way. I was treated like I'm just a nuisance. So it's vital to realize that though there's a divine image and it's unique and it's a gift, you have to reinforce it, as I mentioned earlier. And you have to eliminate other factors that undermine that uniqueness and undermine that divinity, that sanctity of the dignity and majesty of every child. So when you'll go through the stories and history of parenting, this will always be the most thing, most prominent message. So just to give an example, let us say a child misbehaves. So what's the right thing to do? Some parents, my child can never do wrong, it's always someone else's fault. The teacher, the school, the friends, and so on. Some are very disciplinary and they right away punish and ground the child. If you think with a divine image perspective, what you have to think is what's best for the child, not what's best for you, what makes you look good, or what's easiest to do. You're not going by your nature. What's best for the child? Sometimes you have to sit down with the child and with great love say, you know, you did something that needs correction. And I love you because I love you. I want you together. Let's do something. And maybe show them some discipline. But all saturated with love. Not to just ignore it, but to correct. 
and you, over, you do, you're not allow yourself to get in the way. Abraham and Sarah had a disagreement. Ishmael, Abraham's son, with Hagar, was misbehaving, and he was being a bad influence on Isaac, who was Sarah's child with Abraham. And, and Sarah said, he's being a bad influence. I need, he's at this age, I want you to send him away. Abraham refuses. And God says to Abraham, listen to Sarah. Not because it was bad for the, it was, it was good for Ishmael to also go. Because we don't think about ourselves, we think about what's right, what's healthy for the, for the children. Sometimes the mother knows best. And if you think of the divine image of the child instead of what you want, you will do the right thing. You'll reflect, you'll consider. How many parents project what I want? I know what's best for my child. You don't always know what's best. You have blind spots and you could also be doing making mistakes. So how do you determine? You determine by looking in the good book and asking an objective mentor. And you may hear something that's not exactly what you want to hear. Very often parents think of children as it's my reputation. You're going to make my picture look bad. It's not about you, it's about the child. Imagine the gardener thinking the flowers are going to make me look bad and I'll do whatever it takes, even if it's superficial, artificial, to make it look good for the picture. No. You have to be there. An interesting lesson about the uniqueness. When Joseph brings his two sons, Menashe and Ephraim, to Jacob at the end of his life, in the last chapter in the book of Genesis, to, to, to bless them. Menashe was the older, so he put him to the right side of Jacob. Ephraim was the younger one, he put him to the left side. Jacob went and crossed his hands and put his right hand on the head of Ephraim and his on the younger one and the right and the left hand on the head of Menashe. And Joseph said, he's the older one. And Jacob said, I bless them for what they, according to what they need. So the question is asked, why didn't he simply move them? He could have moved Menashe here to the left and Ephraim here. And the answer is, you don't move the child, you move yourself. You adjust to them, you don't have them adjusting to you. Even Jacob the tzaddik, the great Jacob. Think of that lesson. You look at your child and you look for the uniqueness. Some children need more attention. Some need more help because they're maybe not as fast as another child. Don't ever see children as being just, they're all my children. You love them all equally, but each child may need its own thing. Going back to the uniqueness element. So what you have here are principles. That sounds simple, but the truth is, it's built on solid foundations of biblical, Talmudic, and Kabbalistic ideas. In the Kabbalah and mysticism, it talks about parents and children, but not physical ones, spiritual ones. It talks about Abba ve'ima, Chachma and Bina, the two cognitive faculties, the spark of an idea being the father. The mother is the development of the idea. The father provides the seed, the mother carries the child in its womb, where it develops. And the emotions are the progeny are the children are the offspring we talk about that who are the children of great people righteous people their good deeds our students are our children so you see it broadens the idea of parenting and children is not just biological children it's the concept of how you give birth and even more importantly how you nurture that which you've given birth to so the intellect nurtures emotions by doing what by guiding them by being reflective and not allowing the impulses of the emotion to take control. And the Kabbalistic works talks about what the healthy version of that is, what's the unhealthy version. Where, when you need discipline, when you need nurturing, chesed, gvura, and so on. So you see, throughout the literature, thousands of years literature, you have the model, the model of parenting, its effects, its positive effects, and also to prevent and avoid the negative things. There's no greater gift than life. And who will shape life? It will be the parents, above all. Definitely at the earliest age. And it will determine the future and destiny of the child. It's sad to say this, but many people spend most of their time fighting demons, fighting fears and insecurities, instead of being able to focus 
on what I'm made of, what am I good at, and how can I make it better. A big part of that is our society, yes, all the distractions, but a lot of it is what you were given when you were a child. If your, if your divine image was reinforced and it was brought to life, in whatever way, and your creativity and imagination and all the other things I spoke about, it gives you much more tools and most importantly, confidence and courage. So when you go grown to an adult and you enter the hostile, corrupt world and people who are use you and abuse you, but you're armed, you have an arsenal. Artillery that was provided to you by parents who cared, who nurtured, who validated, who supported, and brought the plant to life. Then now you can blossom. So the consequences are very high stake, far-reaching, far-reaching implications. I am focusing, I prefer to focus on the positive. How to make it right. A few years ago, I've, I've mentioned this a number of times, I received a letter a few weeks before Rosh Hashanah. A parent, and I've been following your articles, I see you write a lot about children. As the new year comes, perhaps you have a suggestion for us as parents. Something we can add, increase in our home to provide for our children. For our children's development. So I was thinking about it. Right around the same time, I get an email from another person who grew up in a very affluent and wealthy home, but no love. Nobody was there. A lot of nannies. And she would say, I was in a gilded cage, but I never saw love. And she sent me a picture of herself when she was like five, six years old and asked one line, what happened to this child? And there I had my idea. Find, I wrote, find a picture of yourself as a child, or if you're a parent, a picture of your child as a child, and say, how did that become this? So for, for parents to children is to cultivate the child in them and beauty and the love. For those of us that are adults, to see, trace the steps and know that child is still within you. And then I made the suggestion, the following suggestion based on what I experienced there. Every morning and every night, this is the New Year's resolution. Before your children go to sleep and when they awake, Besides telling them I love you and all the other things you say in the prayers, tell your child, you are God's gift sent to me, a divine image with a unique personality and skills and, fa and faculties. I'm blessed that you're in my life. I will do everything in my power to help you find your unique and indispensable mission that's unique to you and help you actualize it, and help you have the courage and confidence. I'm always supporting you. You say that every morning and every night, the child will start asking, what does that mean? What's a mission? As they grow older, they won't forget that. And it will create conversation. I suggested it. It's on our website at meaningflife.com. You can find it. And I put it out there. I wrote an a, a op-ed, an article about it. A year later, I started getting emails of people who did it through the year. And they said it was transformative for them and for their children. For their children and, and for them. Because, it, yes, it elicited more conversation. What does this mean? So that's a suggestion that each of us can do. And not just lip service. To actually do it with intent, focus, excitement, passion. And yes, find skills and talents your children have. Child comes home from school very excited. Don't just say, ah, that's nothing. You didn't accomplish enough. Never do that. Don't throw cold water. Even, on, even for an adult, on adult standards, it may be a small accomplishment. But for that child, they're so proud. So help them create an arts and crafts um, um, uh, assignment. To do something they enjoy doing. Every child has things they enjoy. How many things can that preempt? That preventive medicine? By nurturing, by irrigating, by watering. Who knows? And there's, not enough, there's no limit to how much you can do. The key thing is to remember the perspective that I'm describing here. It's a perspective that we are not taught. We're not trained. Some of us may have come to it. Some of us may have intuited it. But there's even more to say than what I've said till now. But that's the story, my friends. That gift. And when you go through the stories in the Bible, you'll find parenting lessons. You'll also find things that parents should not do. 
which of course requires its own study, how Abraham and Sarah I mentioned, there's Rivka and Isaac, there's Jacob, Leah and Rachel, and their children. They had problems. There were many, many challenges, even Adam and Eve and Cain and Hevel. But there are also tremendous lessons of the mysterious nefesh, the selfless dedication that parents thought only about their child. How, uh, how Yocheved, the mother of Moses, sacrifices herself. Pharaoh is killing all the Jewish boys. She hides him. He's shining with light as he enters the home. She puts him into a basket, carefully crafted, waterproofed, on the edge of the water, sends her daughter Miriam to watch the boy. Think of the sensitivity of that. And now the Torah makes focus, places focus on that. The care. When Jacob is about to pass away, he calls Joseph and says, I want you to take my, my after I pass my body, I want you to be buried with the, in the Ma'or Samach Pela, the Ohel, the grave place, grave site of my parents and grandparents. And you may think, he tells Joseph, I didn't give that courtesy, granddad courtesy to your mother, Rachel. We buried her on the side of the road, Keva Rachel. You'll see it's not Imar Samachpela. But no, that's where your mother wanted to be. Because Rachel Mavakal Baneo. Rachel cries for her children. And she preferred to be on the road that when the Jews left, Egypt, left Jerusalem, when the temples were destroyed, distraught, broken, demoralized, that they'll see Rachel's tombstone. Rachel's tomb, I should say. And they will be consoled and comforted because their mother is crying for them. That's a mother. And the list goes on of mothering and, and fathering throughout different stories. But they all come down to one thing. It's not about me. Just like my child Saul was sent down here for a purpose, not for self-indulgence, so too, as I as a parent was sent for a purpose. And part of that purpose is to nurture and water and cultivate and love that child and bring and allow that divine image to emerge through its unique talents, through its unique skills in making a mark in this world. I'm specifically keeping this very sharp and focused because I don't want to go off on many tangents because this alone, what I shared if we can adapt and assimilate, internalize that approach, it could change lives, it could change the world. It's a message every parent needs to hear, and a message all of us need to hear. Because whether you're a parent or not, as I said at the outset, you have people you meet, you have people that, friends, there's also nurturing on that level. And then there's the day that you will be blessed with a child. Those of us that were not blessed, there's other ways that we express that element of giving, of nurturing, of caring, of cultivating, of watering. Because we are all gardeners in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden. We're all gardeners in the world in the sphere of influence we have. Our mission is to make it into a garden, which requires doing the right things and avoiding weeding and, and avoiding the negatives. And when we do that, we create a garden of our own environment, in our own home, at workplace, where we travel. And when people see you, they see a gardener. They see someone who is a shepherd, who looks to nurture, who looks to support, looks to validate, and looks to help every individual they meet be the best they can be, to bring out those unique strengths that the divine image each of us has. We will do more parenting workshops but this is the basis and the foundation. We'd love to hear your feedback, your comments, your critique. So please, you can do that on the YouTube channel, on Facebook, on our social media, on our website, MeaningfulLife.com. Please share. Please like. Please get to help us get the word out there. We live in a world which is desperate for this nurturing message. We have all the technology. We have all the machines to make life easy. But the nurturing of the spirit, the machine cannot do. 
it can keep you distracted. It can keep you busy. It can simulate as if you're getting, stimul- getting nurtured. But nurturing happens when we look at each other, when we love each other, when we care for each other. And yes, we can use technology, as I'm doing right now, to broadcast this message, to share it. Why shouldn't it go viral to everywhere? And it doesn't take away from all our, ben- all our gifts of this life. All the technology, all the, the accessories, all the props, they're props. So you can use them well when you're a nurtured entity, when your divine image is emerging. Use all these tools. But if you don't have that divine image, then they're just tools. It's like having a big playground and not knowing what direction to take. So partner with us, my friends. Join us. The Meaningful Life mission is precisely that, to help you find your unique mission in this world for which you were sent as a child and as an adult. And to join together like different musical notes in a large composition to create the grand cosmic symphony. A world of unity, harmony within diversity, unity, brotherhood, sisterhood, where we all bring our unique sense of self and we all complement each other. This has been Simon Jacobson, Meaningful Life Center, MeaningfulLife.com. We're here every Wednesday. I give this class live beginning at 8.30. Please subscribe. And as I said before, I welcome all your feedback. Everyone have a blessed week, a nurturing week, a parenting week. May you parent many fruits and many offspring of all sorts, children, but also our good deeds, our influences, our positive influences, our students. Everyone we come in contact with can be someone you've helped parent. You know what it says? Someone who teaches something to another, even if they're not your biological child, it's considered as you've given them, you've given you've given birth to them, because you've given them something. You've renewed their energy. You've given birth. You've birthed something, an idea, a vote of confidence, ability to start something. You've encouraged it. So be blessed, and let us all be parents in that sense of the word. Thank you so much.